I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Mr. Uh, Joseph Bukowski. He is a director in the Bukowski Skin Care Center in Swazikli, uh, Pennsylvania, the director of dermatologic education for the Family Practice Residency Program at the Medical Center, Beaver, Pennsylvania, and the clinic assistant professor of dermatology at the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. He has been in private practice of dermatology for the past 30 years in Swazikli, Pennsylvania. Dr. Bukowski earned his medical degree at the Georgia University School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. in 1971. He then served internships in both medicine and surgery at the Washington Hospital Center, the Georgia, or I'm sorry, the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Science, respectively. He completed his residency in dermatology at the Ohio State University Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, in 1978 and was certified by the American Board of Dermatology that same year. Dr. Bukowski has over 80 publica publications in the medical literature and is a reviewer for the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, Archives in Dermatology, American Family Practice, the Physician Sports Medicine, Pediatric Dermatology, and is a member of the editorial board of Cutis and Practical Dermatology. He is the originator and director of the Galderma Pre-Board Slide Seminar. Over 80 over 80% of all diplomats of the American Board of Dermatology have taken the pre-board in preparation for the certification exam. During his, during his career, Dr. Bukowski has photographed and captured over 200,000 images of clinical disease, resulting in one of the largest private collections of dermatologic images in the world. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Bukowski. Good morning. You know what time it is? It's awfully early. And you guys, the only ones I know that get up this early. Back in Swickley, Christopher, my physician assistant, is seeing patients right now. I get up about 7, get the office a quarter of 8. I start at 8. Christopher's already started at 7.30. I wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning and continue the rest of the day. My name is Joe Bykowski, and I'm here today to talk about antibiotics and acne. And I'm going to make this a little bit different, hopefully. I practice a little town called Swickley, Pennsylvania, and I and my physician assistant, Christopher, who's been with me for the last 10 years, practice medical dermatology. Acne, eczema, warts, rosacea. Acne, eczema, warts, rosacea. <laughs> Did I say acne, eczema? We do nothing but the everyday lump, bump, rash dermatology. This is my disclosure of, quotes, relevant relationship with industry. I promise to give an unbiased talk. I'll make it as fair as I can. I will use brand names because that's the way that I write for the drugs because there are vehicles in these brand name drugs that are of value. So I think you should be aware they exist. The presentation that you have is not the one I'm giving. The content is the same on the jump drive, but I've obviously as of last night was still switching things around. So if you wish a PDF of this presentation, DRB, Dr. B at dermedonline.com. Okay, and I'll be happy to send you one. The word doctor comes in the Latin word the cherry to teach, and the word physician, the Greek word phycus, to heal, and it's always my privilege to be able to present to those who help us all heal. In 1973 through 75, how many of you were physician assistants at that time? Raise your hands high. And one of you, two of you may remember this. I was in the U.S. Army, the 82nd Airborne, in uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I had been drafted. And I'm not really a person who does well in a structured organization, needless to say. 
I and the military were not doing well in concert. And I was assigned the task of supervising some guy named Haney, Matthews, Mountjoy, and Slusher. These were my salvation. These were the very first four physician assistants in the U.S. Army. And it was my pleasure and privilege for the first year in the Army to teach them medicine and for them to teach me the U.S. Army. We got along very well together. I've taken over 200,000 images of skin disease. This is the most perfect one. It's everything you ever wanted to know about acne. It shows you papules and pustules, comedones, open and closed, and it's missing what? The nodule. It is nodular acne, not cystic acne. Inflammatory nodules disappear with injections of cortisone, respond to systemic antibiotics, and certainly to isotretinoin. Sacs cysts do not, so we treat nodular acne. And this is the structure of tetracycline. How many of you realize that's what it is? Excellent. I feel a lot better because I had to go back and learn it, and I'll tell you later on why. And there's another website. It's called www.dermedonline.com. I'm a big believer in education. The word doctor means teacher, and I believe in educating physician assistants. So I have brought online this website in the last two weeks, and it's the only professional dermatology medical education website that exists, and I have a plan over the next three to five to ten years. I have created a core curriculum of medical dermatology that's been designed specifically for physician assistants, and I think it's most important that we all have basic knowledge. It'll be based upon 100,000 clinical dermatologic images over that period of time, it's based upon a learning management system. It'll be like going to school online, just as is Phoenix University. This will be tests, there'll be grades, there'll be scores, there'll be certificates. And they're overturning 20 learning modules at present. We're going to have dermatology basics, for example, and there's going to be normal anatomical variants. How many of you know what a Morton's toe is? Raise your hand. How many of you know what a Taurus Palantine is? All of those will be there and more. And we're going to talk about acne and rosacea, topic dermatitis. There'll be learning modules for each and every one of these over the next three to five years. And I have a faculty now of over 23 committed dermatologists to help me bring this online. So if you're interested, dermedonline.com. You may want to go there and register now. Okay. Online is nice, but there's still the books, and there are two books that I think that are of great consequence. Number one is Treatment of Skin Disease by Mark Lebwald. It sits in my clinic. If you've got a problem in figuring out what to do, go ask Mark. And number two is Comprehensive Dermatologic Drug Therapy by Wolverton. This is every single drug that a medical dermatologist should know how to use. So we're going to talk about antibiotics and acne today. And I'm going to make this talk a little bit different. I'm not going to give you a lot of data, but I'm hopefully going to provide you with a lot of information. The word antibiotic means against life. And what is it really? It was a substance produced by an organism, usually either a bacterium or a fungus, that interferes with bacterial cell growth in another organism. So it works against life. They originally were, quotes, naturally occurring substances. We'd go down to South America and dig up soil and see if we couldn't find streptomyces producing something against something. Now we do it in the laboratory. Well, why do we use antibiotics in acne today? It's serendipity. It was a mistake. We had no idea what we were doing. In the 1950s, tetracycline became, well, actually erythromycin became available very cheaply. And we were looking at acne and we saw red bumps and pus bumps. We thought it was infection. We had no idea there was such a thing called inflammation. 
So we said, my goodness, it must be infection. We'll use erythromycin. Some patients got better, not many. We said, well, we must have the wrong bacteria. We didn't culture anything out at that time, uh, the wrong antibiotic. And tetracycline then became available cheaply. We said, well, let's try that. We used tetracycline. It worked. We thought that we had found a magic bullet that got the bacteria that produced acne. We didn't know about inflammation. We didn't know about migration of polys. We did not know about cytokines. We had no concept. And incidentally, we carried that over to rosacea because at that time it was acne rosacea, and we assumed that they were very similar. And we used antibiotics there, and they worked. Again, we learned out later, learned later that it was due to inflammation. And we know that in acne that there's going to be increase in sebum because of androgens. There's going to be follicular hyperkeratinization, proliferation of P. acnes, and inflammation. And those are the four things that we wish to treat. And we now use antibiotics, usually doxycycline and minocycline, because they work against those things. They reduce P. acnes and therefore indirectly will reduce inflammation. But besides that, they also are anti-inflammatory in and of themselves. In the 80s, Leyden and a number of other researchers found that the antibiotics would decrease P. acne counts, but they'd also inhibit directly the migration of polys. And we learned about inhibition of proteinases, such as matrix metalloproteinase. So now for a little test, because it's early in the morning and I want you all to be interactive. Some statements, and you decide if they're true or false. Is everybody ready? Yeah, a lot of enthusiasm. Antibiotic is a class of drug. True or false? I got it right, too. It's an activity. There are many different molecules that have the ability to be an antibiotic. So when an individual says they're allergic to antibiotics, that makes no common or medical sense. There are specific molecular structures they may be allergic to. But there's just a short list of antibiotic uh, molecules that have antibiotic activity. They also may have other activities that we've not discovered or we will discover shortly. Tetracycline hydrochloride is a frequent and potent photosensitizer, yes or no? How many of you have seen a documented case of photosensitivity of the skin to tetracycline hydrochloride? Look around the room. Wow. <laughs> but every single bottle of tetracycline hydrochloride says avoid excessive and prolonged exposure to natural and artificial sunlight. Correct? Where do, oh, the answer is false. It is not a frequent or potent photosensitizer. There are no studies whatsoever that document it. What happened? In the late 1960s, Weinstein and Frost took a bunch of medical students, put them on a fishing boat off the Florida Keys from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Prior to setting sail, they gave them declamycin, dimethylchlorotetracycline, not tetracycline hydrochloride. Declamycin is a potent photosensitizer, and 9 out of 10 burned. Why the 10th didn't burn, I don't know. That declamycin warning has become class labeling for tetracyclines and their derivatives ever since. There are many drugs that carry class warnings, and they make no common sense. And the knowledge in which they're based is 30 and 40 years old and is incorrect. But we're locked into them by package inserts and FDAs, rules, regulations, lawyers, and a lack of interest in researching. 
Antibiotics interfere with the efficacy of the oral contraceptive. True or false? Is there one that does it? Rifampin is the only one. There are three very nice pieces of literature on this. Number one, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology back in the year 2000 in their guidelines specifically state it's rifampin and nothing else. Archer and Archer, an article in JAD in 2002, the exact same information. And if you look at the package insert for any of the oral contraceptives under drug interactions, it's rifampin and nothing else. Doxycycline and minocycline are effective for treating community-acquired MRSA. True or false? True. Highly effective. Safe. We've had these drugs since the late, uh, 70, the late 60s, early 70s, doxycycline. And they were both invented simply because of the fact that with the molecular reconfiguration, you were able to get increased absorption with uh, the GI tract with uh, decrease in GI tract upset. So they can be taken with food and you still get good blood levels. They're inexpensive in their generic forms, but their generic forms, for example, in doxycycline, are over 25 different manufacturers of doxycycline. Gosh knows when you write for that generic or you're forced to write for it where it was made and what's really in it. Our FDA is able to look at 25 different manufacturers around the world for that one product? I don't know. Okay. In the dosing, though, it works really, really well. 100 milligrams of either twice a day for 10 days. I've kept track of my bacterial skin cultures since the year 2004. And what I've found to be most interesting is I do about 700, 750 cultures a year. I culture anything that walks in the door before I ever give a systemic, anti systemic antibiotic. If there's something to culture, I culture it. Why do I do that? To prove I'm right if I'm right and to make sure I'm not wrong. It's good medical care in my opinion. And about 25% of those cultures come back as staff, and about 7 to 8% will come back as community-acquired MRSA over the last... And that, those numbers haven't changed over four or five years in my community. And my sensitivities still show that community-acquired MRSA is still sensitive to the tetracyclines. Tetracycline antibiotic effects are only secondary to antibiotic effects. True or false? Tetracycline is an interesting molecule, okay? On the C4 is the antibacterial site. It's a dimethyl amino group. If you take that group off of the carbon-4, there is no antibiotic effect of this molecule. The anti-inflammatory effect on the molecule is on carbon C11 and C12 to inhibit matrix metalloproteinases. So this molecule has dual activity, and the modifications at C2, 4, 6, 7, 11, or 12 is what has an effect upon either being an, uh, an antibiotic or anti-inflammatory. Okay. Subantimicrobial is the same as low-dose doxycycline. True or false? False. Okay. Subantimicrobial dosing or anti-inflammatory dose doxycycline is 40 milligrams a day or less. There is a, a dentist in Long Island, his name is Lauren Golub, who should get the Nobel Prize in Medicine someday for his work with tetracycline and calcium metabolism and a couple of other things. But serendipitously, he discovered that if you give 40 milligrams a day or less of doxycycline, no antibiotic effect, only anti-inflammatory effect, and you markedly decrease, if not eliminate, antibiotic side effects. 
Low dose is 50 milligrams of doxycycline or more a day, and that still has an antibiotic effect. So, Oratia is anti-inflammatory dose doxycycline. On-label is indicated for rosacea. Off-label, it will work in acne. And this is the little thing that shows you the graph that if you stay below the minimal inhibitory concentration for any bacteria, which is the lower blue line, and that's what happens with 40 milligrams a day of doxycycline, you don't get antibiotic effect. Baseline, and four weeks later, that's 40 milligrams of extended release antibiotic. Something to consider. Off-label. Okay. There are numerous good studies by today's standards for the use of antibiotics in acne. True or false? We use them like water. There must be studies all over the place, but I told you it was a serendipitous occurrence back in the 50s, and it was false. There are none except for one molecule. So there are no good studies by today's standards. They all are to be used adjunctively in the treatment of acne. Okay? And the dosing has always been done empirically. We thought that if a little is good, then more is better. Or more is better or less is better. We really don't know. But we've always thought, if anything, the more you give, the better it works. Well, that's not actually true once you figure out what the mechanism of action is. It may be you don't need as much as you think you need. And so we've always tried to titrate the clinical response. Hmm, interesting. And there's no FDA approval for oral antibiotics for acne except for solidine. And that is the only one. And they've come out with weight-based dosing. And what was the rationale for this? Minocycline and extended release efficacy. They looked at one, two, and three milligrams per kilogram and found that one worked as well as three. And safety, that the safety profile in one milligram a day was equal to placebo. So the efficacy of a systemic antibiotic, though, may not relate to blood levels. Remember, what you're most interested in doing is putting the drug into the skin. It theoretically has nothing to do with how, how high the blood levels go as long as you have enough in the blood to get it into the skin. So to give a whole bunch may not be the best idea in the world. We just don't know for sure. But minocycline is highly lipophilic. It loves to go into fat, and it loves to go into sebum. So it may be necessary with minocycline because it is so lipophilic to keep your serum levels down, decrease your chances of adverse events, and still get enough into the sebaceous gland to be effective. So you'd get low systemic exposure, but also you could have efficacy. It looks like that with minocycline at least, how many of you have seen the patient that took minocycline and then developed true vertigo, lightheadedness, or dizziness? It's not, any of you ever had vertigo? And the rest are so dizzy you can't remember, right? Anyhow, okay. I had it one morning for about four hours. It's not a pleasant experience at all. Okay, so if you can reduce the possibilities of this occurring and still get efficacy, it's not a bad idea. So there is a product out there that is weight-based, and now they've got five different weight-based dosings that you can consider if you wish, if you want to use minocycline. That's solidine. This is solidine in combination with Xeana. Baseline, four weeks, eight weeks, and 12 weeks. Remember, it takes a minimum of four to eight weeks to really get enough into the skin to be effective. And it's going to take, with any of these antibiotics, probably at least three to four months of daily dosing to get enough into skin. We don't have good studies because we can't measure skin levels for these drugs. But that's what our clinical impression is, and it can take even longer. And that's assuming 
that you've got patient compliance and they're taking their medicines all the time. Thing to remember with these regimens, and I'm going to go over this over and over, is always make sure you use a benzoyl peroxide. My benzoyl peroxides of choice are either Duac or Acania, basically because of the vehicles in which they come. They both have very nice vehicles. You get good absorption at the same time, decrease in adverse events from topical benzoyl peroxide. Number eight. You all been keeping your own, own score in your learning management system here? Okay. High-dose doxycycline can be administered without GI tract upset. We've known for years that if you give doxycycline in high dosages that you increase the amount of, amount of GI tract upset. And so that obviously decreases compliance as well as efficacy. Well, it is now true. There's Dorix, 150 milligrams that can be given. So if you wish to use doxycycline in high dose, then you can give it and you can give it safely. Here's baseline four weeks and eight weeks. Why? Well, this is enteric coated, and the tablet has some very unique properties. Vehicles are most important, not only in topical medications, but also in systemics. And the medications that we have today are formulated in vehicles that increase the efficacy and decrease the adverse events. And that's why many branded products are of value. And you just can't substitute. For a generic, for example, by law has to be within 80 to 120% of the bioequivalents of the active. Well, the very first generic that ever came out was Digitalis. And when it was at 120 of what it should have been, a lot of people got digitoxicity. So these are things to keep in mind. Well, this is a very interesting little product because the fact that the coating is pH sensitive, the coating dissolves in the stomach, releasing pellets. Those pellets then go into the small intestine and that's where you get the absorption of the drug. The drug is never absorbed in the stomach itself. A couple of other interesting facts. The delayed release, you can take it with food or milk, so you can certainly increase compliance with the teenagers. And the tablet can be broken and sprinkled on applesauce, and you don't lose any of the efficacy of its delayed release mechanism. Those pellets are not released until they get down into the gastric mucosa, the gastric juice. And the major advantage, and one that we all have to remember today, is cost. We all know that managed healthcare, if you write a prescription for 90 pills, the patient's probably gonna get 30 pills and two refills from the pharmacist because the pharmacist can collect copays two more times. Well, if you write for 150 of Dorex, and let's say at the end of one month the patient's doing well, you write for another 150 and a number 30, but tell them to break it in half. So you've decreased your dose, but you've gotten two months of medicine for one copay. So you've done the patient a favor. So it's another way to try and manipulate the system, which manipulates us for the betterment of the patient. So this is Dorix at 150 a day for the first four weeks, and then 75 milligrams for the next four weeks. We really don't know how much of these drugs you need. We do it still on clinical titration and clinical response. And again, if you're gonna use a systemic antibiotic, make sure you've got a benzoyl peroxide on board because you're gonna to wanna to prevent drug uh, bacterial resistance and we're gonna talk about that. Number nine, doxycycline is a better drug than minocycline. Possibly. All right, efficacy depending upon the studies and safety depending upon the studies. Here's a study that's quite old but shows that doxycycline and minocycline are equivalent in efficacy and acne. This was a global assessment of patients and in this study it was thought that they were equal. 
Okay, adverse events. We all know what happens with the oral tetracyclines. You can see changes in the normal bacteria microflora, gram-negative folliculitis, candida overgrowth. We can see antibiotic resistance acquired with selection pressure. I'm going to talk about that. The big problem with doxycycline is photosensitivity. It is not as high as some articles would say at 50%, but it exists. But that is probably the worst that happens with doxycycline is photosensitivity, which is manageable. With minocycline and doxycycline, you have to think about your track up. The big thing with minocycline, there's the hypersensitivity syndromes and lupus-like. Those are all very rare. The vertigo is a problem. The hyperpigmentation is the biggest problem, I think. If she gets tan, brown, gray pigmentation of her skin, her teeth, her sclera, or her eyes, or her nails, she is not a happy camper. And we all want to be happy at the KOA campgrounds. So I'm very careful who I use minocycline on. For the most part, I'd rather take the risk of the photosensitivity than the hyperpigmentation. And I have seen it occur within four weeks of use. Anecdotal. Okay, adverse events. Here's a little study the FDA did, looks at adverse events. The left is doxy, the right is minnow. Fewer per 100,000 cases or prescriptions for doxy than minocycline. Okay, and then GI tract complaints. This is Dorix, the enteric coated versus generic doxycycline. Dorix is in the yellow, and generic's in the gray, and placebo's in the green. Low is good, high is bad. You can read the colors for adverse events. Okay, well, let's get to antibiotics and acne and the dilemma, antimicrobial resistance. All right, some facts. First reported about 1979, P-acne's resistance. It was about the same time that we'd introduced topical erythromycin and clindamycin. And Layden did some of this work, the majority of this work initially. Okay, one in five patients who were on either topical erythromycin or clindamycin developed resistance, P-acne resistance. And they're cross-sensitive. If you're resistant, if the, if the organism is resistant to one, it may well be resistant to the other. So it's a major problem because acne is a chronic long-term disease with long-term therapy. You see acne between the ages of 10 and 25. Most people have the most trouble between the ages of 16 and 19. Majority of patients are put on systemic antibiotics if they're around that long, and they may be on them for that period of two to four years. So it is something that we deal with over a long-term basis. There are no absolute guides for antibiotic use, but we know that we should limit their use. There are suggestions, but no real guidelines for how much to use and for how long to use it. And guidelines of care for acne management uh, the acne work group, and these are Strauss and Layden, Lucky Shalita, the big names who've done this work and published this in JAD, April 2007. You should take this one down, but it'll be in the PDF if you order it. But you need to go read these guidelines for acne therapy because these are the guidelines that you would be held accountable for, whether you like it or not, in a court of law. Because if you're going to get sued for something, and Abby went over this yesterday, you need to have documented everything, number one, but more importantly is that what's the lawyer going to look for? The lawyer's going to go to the PDR, number one, and say there's no indication in this package insert for this drug to be used for what you're doing it for the way you did it. That's number one. And then number two, they're going to look through the literature that you're supposed to be familiar with 
and they're going to read those guidelines very carefully. And they're guidelines for numerous diseases in the JAD, and you should be familiar with all of those. Okay, antimicrobial resistance. Number one, how do you see it? Well, you may have reduced clinical response, but a lot of times you don't know if the patient's doing well or not doing well because they did or they didn't comply. Compliance is always the issue. And as Steve Feldman will tell you, the three things that stop people from getting better is lack of compliance, lack of compliance, and lack of compliance. And even in well-constructed studies in which people are paid to take medicines or to use them, he has absolute proof with little computer chips and medicine caps that people still don't take the medicines the way they're supposed to. So you do have a clinical quandary there in trying to figure out if the drug isn't working, or if the patient isn't working, and that can be a challenge. So you need to pick a medication that, number one, has a, a regimen of administration which is easiest for the patient to comply with, and that's usually once a day. And number two, you wish to pick a medication which has the most chance of helping and the least chance of hurting. But it can be difficult by clinical response. Sometimes you see no response whatsoever. Sometimes they're doing well, then they relapse. And obviously in patients with acne, if they relapse and get those central facial pustules, the first thing you think about is gram-negative folliculitis and grab a culture and see if you're growing E. coli or Klebsiella now. Okay? And the P. acnes might even be resistant before you start so that you never even have a chance to make them better because of the fact that they're now resistant strains floating around in the general population. So let's talk about antibiotic resistance and how does it occur. It can be intra, well you have, there are three places you have to look. Number one is intrabacteria, bacterium within the little bug. Number two is interbacterium between the little bugs. And then number three is in the human population, what those bugs are doing once they're sitting out there with us. Well here are the mechanisms, and these are things that I didn't know in the last three or four years. I wasn't taught this in medical school or in residency because I don't think the knowledge existed at that time and then I sort of missed it someplace along the way until I got interested in the topic. But bacteria are fascinating little organisms. They can do some things that you'd never suspect. Within, they can have efflux pumps. The antibiotic molecule can come in, they take one look and don't like it and they can shoot it right back out. I just don't like it. Degrading enzymes, well it's here and I don't like it, but I don't have any saliva left so I can't spit it back out, so we'll just chew it up and degrade it right now and get rid of it. And then number three is they've got enzymes that can actually alter it so it loses efficacy. Well, once they've done that, what happens between them? Well, there are three mechanisms by which they can do that. Something called a plasmid, don't understand what it is, little circle there, it's a resistant gene I'm told, but they can shoot these plasma things, plasmid things back and forth between each other and transfer a resistant gene to a given antibiotic. DNA transfer directly, and number three, viral transfer. And it doesn't have to be between the same genus species. They can do this back and forth between different genus species. Because they're so primitive, they're pretty good at doing some primary process things. And in the human population, all of this leads to what's called selection pressure. And what is selection pressure? Well, the way it works is this. One bacterium acquires resistance to a given antibiotic by one of the mechanisms that I have told you about. It then takes that and transmit to another bacteria in the immediate system. So it's gone from 
intra to enter. And then this just keeps happening. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the antibiotic that you're administering is destroying all the non-resistant bacteria. So among themselves, they're helping each other out, and you're knocking off the good ones, and they keep producing the bad ones. So you then get overgrowth of resistant bacteria. So the example, let's say you've got 100 P. acne sitting in a pile of sebaceous unit. 90 are susceptible to give an antibiotic, but 10 are not. So by the inter, the intra and the inter mechanisms, they're starting to pass this resistance back and forth. You knock off the 90 good ones, the 10 bad ones that are left are replicating. That's called selection pressure. Sites of antibiotic resistance. We're still working on this. We're not so sure about a lot of the data. We haven't really put it all together yet. But certainly P. acnes, and there may be other flora in the body that develop resistance. And we, in our specialty, are missing it. It may well be that the ear, nose, and throat guys are seeing strep in the throat that we can't imagine. They can't figure out why it's always there. It may be because we're dropping, we're dropping 5 million scripts a year for antibiotics plus for arachne alone into the population. It may be that the pediatricians are seeing infections in increasing amounts and not realizing where they're coming from. It may be there's something going on in the GI tract. There are all these possibilities we just don't know. We know the basis by which the resistance can occur. We understand selection pressure. And the question now arises is, of what clinical significance is it? And that's why we're on guard. But in the GI tract and other locations, there may be things occurring, and we are missing them because they're not in our specialty. We're aware of it because of P. acne and acnes, but we may be missing it elsewhere. So the antibiotic dilemma, to use or not to use. Well, why do we use systemic antibiotics? They work. Efficacy. They actually do work. They're very good at reducing P. acnes and they are anti-inflammatory. When used appropriately in the appropriate patient, they're very good. Also, that efficacy is good because of compliance. It's a lot easier to pop a pill than it is to rub a cream on your face once or twice a day. In general, Ladies like to use lotions and creams, and guys like to pop pills. And one of the studies that I've suggested is that you take a disease such as rosacea and give them both a systemic and a topical medication. Patients clear, then give them a choice of continuing both one or the other and see if there's a gender bias for one or the other, and that if compliance then relates to the gender bias as to whether or not they have the ability to use the cream or the pill, whichever they would like. So efficacy, safety. Erythromycin and tetracycline have been around since the mid-50s. Doxycycline and minocycline since the early 70s. These drugs are safe. There are no known drug interactions of any consequence. When we talk about the adverse events, for the most part, they are all manageable. And when you think of how much of this we use and how little difficulty we see with it, and how some of it isn't even true, i.e. tetracycline hydrochloride is a frequent and potent photosensitizer, it is amazing how safe they are. Compliance, depending upon the individual, as I said before, guys like to pop pills. It's a lot easier to swallow a pill and then have it go throughout your entire body than it is to try and rub creams and lotions on your face, chest, shoulders, and back. 
So all of those things have to be taken into consideration. Well, how should we use antibiotics and acne? Well, there's topicals and there's systemics. You'd like to use them for a short period of time, but we have studies that show that resistance can occur within 7 to 14 days. So what's a short period of time? We know that clinically, it takes at least four to six weeks to start to see a response. The studies go 12 weeks because that was arbitrarily chosen by, uh, by Leyden about 30 years ago, and they should really go 16, 20, or 24, 28 weeks. They should go longer so that we really get a feel for what the drugs do. But we theoretically should limit their use. We should only use one antibiotic molecule at a time if possible. If you're going to be using only antibiotics, don't mix a clindamycin topically with a systemic doxycycline. Oh, by the way, why don't we use tetracycline or doxycycline topically? I forgot to put that in here. Anybody know? It, it, we're dermatologists, right? It's real simple. If, if you can take a pill of my mouth, the first thing we always think about doing is rubbing on the skin. Well, why don't we do that with tetracycline and doxymetacycline? They're not absorbed through the skin. That's the problem. And the one preparation that we did have about 30 years ago uh, produced a, uh, a fluorescence under Woods Lights, and a Whiskey A Go Go was a popular pastime then, and you went to eat the black lights and you'd fluoresce, so it wasn't acceptable. Well, anyhow, use only one molecule at a time if you can. Benzoyl peroxide is our salvation. And benzoyl peroxide is our salvation simply because of the fact that it kills P. acnes and it does it by oxidation. They cannot develop a mechanism of resistance to oxidation. So BPO is where you have to go. They talk about washout periods. I'm not so sure those are of any value. I'm a big believer in the use of the retinoids and BPO alone. Every patient that has acne should be on a retinoid. There are numerous retinoids. We could talk about them at length. Some are highly effective and have high irritation. Some are less effective with less irritation. You should be pick that's not the lecture today, but the point is you should pick the one that works best for you and your practice and your patients in a given situation. We have numerous ones to choose from. Remember that the generic retinoids, i.e. Uh, tretinoin and generic vehicles, is very irritating, so always try and get a branded product when you're doing a retinoid. You can control the irritation a lot better. Number two is benzoyl peroxide, benzoyl peroxide, benzoyl peroxide. And there are studies that show, and I did not include it here, but I guess I should have, that benzoyl peroxide is not only effective against inflammatory papules and pustules because of its effect upon P. acnes, but there are studies that show that benzoyl peroxide is also anti-comedonal, that you can decrease comedone counts. And the two pivotal studies for both DUAC and benzoclin show not only a decrease, significant decrease in inflammatory lesions, but also a significant decrease in open and closed comedones. Okay, and always use the BPO. Okay, so, in my opinion, and that's what I've offered you today, and everything you take away from here is the way that I think about this and the way I practice, your supervising physician may think differently. So in concert with your supervising physician, but as I've learned from Christopher, my PA, there are a lot of things that I teach that I forget that he remembers that saved me. And I'll give you a quick story. We have, uh, I've been in practice about three years with Christopher, and we've moved into a new building. And we share the same schedule. He doesn't have his own schedule. 
We will skip, and we do nothing but medical dermatology. We do no cosmetics. We do no fancy surgical procedures. We just take care of the everyday. And in all honesty, the two of us will see a total of about 100 visits a day, starting at 7.30 and going to 5. And when you run those numbers, it works out to about six patients an hour. So we share the same schedule, and I never review his charts, and I'll say that out loud because I don't sit there and pick up 25 charts and see what he wrote in the chart. What I actually review is his practice of medicine because we dictate the charts, and he never knows when I'm going to see that last patient the next time up. So I can go back and not only look at the chart, but talk to the patient and make sure everything jives. So I have, quotes proof of quality of care, but after 10 years, I trust Christopher explicitly. So Christopher... Had, I didn't know this. There was a room two. I walked in, and in room two, there's this little two-week-old baby, and there are these two very fretful parents, mom and dad, both about 19 years old. And I looked down at the baby, and they're showing me this rash on the face, and I'm saying to myself, oval, raised, scaling, clearing central, never seen this in a two-week-old. It's going to be a biopsy. And I'm not really happy about biopsying the face of a two-week-old, two-week-old. Right about then, the door opens, and I hear Christopher's voice, and it says, it's positive. I turned around, and I said, Christopher, I didn't know, were you in here? He said, well, I was in here, I forgot to tell you, I didn't mark it, oh. I said, well, Christopher, what's positive? He says, well, the KOH is positive. I said, Christopher, why in the world would you do a KOH on a lesion on the face of a two-week-old? And he said, well... You always taught me if a scale scrape it, so I scraped it. I said, thank you very much. Sometimes even I forget that, anyhow. Okay, so this is my opinion about antibiotics. I think systemics work better than topicals. It just so happens that clindamycin is included in such products as Duac and Acania. But it's the benzyl peroxide sitting in that vehicle that I'm most interested in. And while we're talking about that also, there's a new product out now called Benzifoam, which is benzyl peroxide in a foam vehicle. And one of the problems that you're going to have, obviously, is acne of the back and trying to get a benzyl peroxide there. So with this vehicle, it may increase the compliance of the patient in order to get the topical benzyl peroxide onto the back. But I think that systemics are better than topicals, so I go with systemics. I think that minocycline and doxycycline are more effective than tetracycline and erythromycin for many reasons. There are studies to show that doxycycline has more anti-inflammatory effect than minocycline. There are studies to show that minocycline will decrease P. acne's counts significantly. So in your mind, you may have the trade-off between anti-inflammatory effect, better with doxy, antibacterial effect, proven better with minocycline, and that's a choice that you'll have to make. I don't use tetracycline at all simply because of the absorption problems. <laughs> These kids eat all the time, so it interferes with the absorption, number one. Number two is GI tract upset. And number three, the erythromycin just doesn't work well at all. So I think that minnow and doxy are more efficacious. I think that they're safer especially when you know what the adverse event profiles can be, and you've got choices. You've got solidine if you have concerns one way. You've got Dorix if you have concerns the other way. And you see the least resistance with these molecules. Minocycline and doxycycline. Minocycline is better than doxycycline. It's activity against P. acnes. There are studies to show that, but doxy does work against P. acnes. 
There's better lipid solubility with minocycline. For example, if you have a patient and they have a large amount of impetigo and you wish to treat with an antibiotic, the drug of choice should be minocycline for the most part because 100 milligrams twice a day for 10 days. And the advantage there is, is that obviously 20-25% of the population will carry staph in the external nares, so you need to culture that also. But besides using mupirocin in the external nares for 10 days, minocycline gets into that nasal mucosa very well because of its lipid solubility. Okay, and doxycycline advantages has a higher anti-inflammatory activity. There's only been one assay performed on that, but doxycycline beat out minocycline. And I think that it's a safer drug because basically all I worry about there is the phototoxicity. And antibiotics should always, always, always be used with benzoyl peroxide. So in our practice, what we routinely will do, depending upon the severity of the acne, but let's say that you're looking at a patient who has moderately severe inflammatory uh, compa uh, papular pustular comedonal acne. What does that mean? Let's say they got 30 inflammatory lesions and 30 comedones scattered all over the face. They're unhappy campers. Routinely, I'll start them on a systemic antibiotic and a topical retinoid. To also talk about skin care, which we've not done, but skin care is most important. Cleanse and moisturize. I always use a ceramide-based product. My favorite is CeraVe twice a day. Cleanse and moisturize. That cuts down the irritation from retinoids. It's over-the-counter. It's cheap. I'm sorry, inexpensive. And I'll see them back in one month. I had the luxury in my practice because all I do is medical dermatology so I can give quick and rapid follow-ups. And I'll see them back in one month. And then I will add on my benzoyl peroxide product. Routinely, I don't use the two together to begin with because if there's an adverse event, irritation, redness, or drying, I don't know which topical product produced it. So then I've got to back off on probably both of them and then start back again. So my routine is systemic antibiotic, number one. Number two is a retinoid and then a benzoyl peroxide a month later. So with that, I'll thank you for allowing me to hopefully have been a teacher this morning of healers. Questions or comments? I'm a little hard of hearing and I have some trouble with distinguishing sounds when you speak, so if you please speak sort of clearly and distinctly and slowly and I'll try and understand here, okay? I have a subset of patients that don't tolerate or say they're allergic to BPO and I also believe that you have to put a topical antibiotic in conjunction with oral. What would be your next in, in line? Would you use a sulfur product? Yeah, um, I don't use sulfur products in general, and there's no evidence whatsoever that they're going to be effective in handling the resistance problem. I think you're going to have to work with the BPO issue, and it may well be that with some of the newer products that out, the one that came out of Kenya may not be in the vehicle. And the question is, how often do you have to use them? There is no evidence that you have to use them every day. We've really not done the studies. We do know that five to seven days can be effective. So what you may have to do is to pick by trial and error with use of samples, the one which is the least irritating, use it for a five to seven day period, maybe once a month, once every two months. And the other thing I think is most important is skin care is to make sure that you pick what they cleanse and moisturize with. So our, our practice will be either use CeraVe or Cetaphil for cleansing and moisturizing. A lot of times the individual is using a bunch of other things over the counter. I give a, a talk on drugs 
and taking drug histories in which I've seen numerous cases where the patient walks in and they have the, the Tazerac that I prescribed and the, OT, or the, uh, the generic tretinoin prescribed by the attending physician, they were using both. So the other thing to do is to have the patient bring with them all of the products they use and let's see exactly what they do use. I have two more quick questions. Um, what's your oral antibiotic of choice in a tetracycline allergic patient? I'm not so sure that I've ever seen tetracycline allergic patients. I'm not sure I actually believe that exists, but unfortunately you have to live with that. And that theoretically rules out minocycline, although you probably can use it, and that actually then takes you to sulfamethoxyl uh, trimethoptrin, Bactrim, etc., which are unbelievably great great drug for treating acne. Your problem is toxic epidermal necrolysis, a little pearl. If you get them through the first 30 days and they've not developed TEN, then you're home free. Okay? Is there any evidence that a BPO wash with that short contact time would be efficacious in reducing the resistance of the PO antibiotic? The answer to that is yes. There are two studies, two products, and one is, I think, Revoxyl Creamy Wash, and I forget the other one, both short contact therapy, and that may be another solution to your problem. And Layden did work to show that they can be efficacious, yes. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Sir. Uh, uh, two questions. Uh, first, uh, what is the reasoning behind uh, not using uh, two different antibiotic molecules, one systemic and one, uh, one topical? Why not to do it? Yeah. Theoretically, because it exposes that bacterium to both, and they may develop resistance to both. So you just compound your problem. Okay. The second question, it may be a little out of the, the scope of sequence of your talk, but I didn't hear you mention anything about uh, topical dapsone. I was wondering if you have any comments on that. <laughs> yes, I do. Interesting drug. Okay. Interesting concept. Okay. And it certainly has a place for inflammatory lesions. Number one, it's safe, 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 okay? So you don't have to worry about anything bad happening by systemic absorption. Number two, we don't know the mechanism by which it's anti-inflammatory in skin. We know that it's antibacterial in treating uh, leprosy because I think it interferes with folic acid. In treating acne, we don't know the mechanism, but the best of our knowledge, it is anti-inflammatory, whatever that means. How many pathways of inflammation do we really have? Um, and I will add it on I look at that as being something in my armamentarium if the patient hasn't seen it yet, or let's say that she's just not happy and she's getting two lesions every month and you've already got her on a systemic antidote. I have a new product for you. Okay? <laughs> uh, yes, ma'am. Um, I have two questions. Uh, have you ever seen pseudotumor cerebri with the new medications, the, like the Doxy or the Dorix? Have I seen what? I'm sorry. Pseudotumor cerebri. And what would you recommend? So I had, a, I had a 14 year old that they thought possibly had that um, on brand name Dorix. And so they took him off, but he has severe acne. So what would you recommend putting him on? Okay. Um, actually, a couple of answers. First of all, um, you, in patients that have, uh, Guy Webster is, is the authority on this. And if I'm not mistaken, in patients, and it's in the literature, in patients who have developed true pseudotumor cerebri and tetracyclines, you can use isotretinoin. Isotretinoin can also cause it, okay? And, but Guy Webster is the authority on that, and okay. it's in the literature. Going back to pseudotumor cerebri, it is rare, but it can occur with the tetracycline molecules, that group of drugs. It can occur with isotretinoin. And the question is, does the patient truly have it or not? And the usual presentation is going to be headaches and blurred or double vision, da 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 And I think the most important thing to do is to, number one, prove the diagnosis. 
So that's a phone call to the ophthalmologist. Get them in that day and find out if they truly have it. A number of people get headaches and it doesn't relate to pseudotumor cerebri. And if they've gone and read about it in the package insert or the friendly pharmacist has given them that piece of paper that... So you need to prove the diagnosis, number one. And number two, uh, you could actually go from there over to Bactrim or you could go to uh, isotretinoin. And one other question, um, with esophageal erosions, is that decrease, have you ever seen it with the delayed release? Yes. Dorix? You have, okay. If I were to stand up here and tell you that these drugs are guaranteed never to cause a problem, it's not true. I have seen esophageal erosion with the use of enteric-coated products. Yes. Great. Thank you. Um, if somebody's had lupus-like syndrome induced by minocycline, would you avoid putting them on any other uh, antibiotic, even low-dose erasia? Well, the question is whether or not you put them. Remember, the word antibiotic now is, is not a class of drugs, but it's molecules. So uh, would I avoid using the tetracycline class? The answer is yes. Uh, would I pick another molecule with antibiotic activity? The answer is yes. Okay. Thank okay. you. Sir? Hi. Uh, thank you. Great lecture, Dr. Bukowski. A quick question. You mentioned minocycline-induced hyperpigmentation. I'm just curious, in your experience, is it reversible without treatment? The, an <laughs> the answer to that is yes, and I think so, okay? Um, on the young women that develop in areas of no proven inflammation, for example, they get those, uh, those macules on the thighs or the legs, or if they get the teeth and the fingernails and the sclera, I'm not so sure that's reversible. I think that it is. In older individuals in which it occurs in sites of inflammation, and I have photo documentation of this hyperpigmentation occurring in stasis dermatitis, as well as in chronic actinically damaged skin, that is reversible. And in the elderly population, my age and older, you can see dramatic blue-black pigmentation in these areas, and it will go back to normal over the course of months when you withdraw the drug. It may be that there are two different types of hyperpigmentation. I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that. Yes, ma'am. Have you ever seen the minocycline-related side effects, such as the hyperpigmentation or the hypersensitivity um, syndrome in, with uh, the use of solidine? I have not seen it, and one of the claims of solidine is that it should decrease the chance of that happening. Anecdotal, I have been places where an individual has reported that it has happened. It's not in the literature, however, it's all anecdotes, and a lot of times our anecdotes are not true, so you have to be careful. But it would make good common sense that if you wanted to use minocycline and if you knew that you got into trouble or you could get into trouble with what we have, and they come along with solidine and so far have no proof, it would be reasonable to use it to avoid that or at least make the attempt to try and avoid it. Yes, sir. Are you aware of any evidence of support for doing laboratory testing with use of Bactrim orally? Laboratory testing for CBCs? If you read Fitzpatrick's book, the old, one of the older editions before you were born, page 800 and something in the upper right-hand corner, there was a little statement that said, that you shouldn't use a bathroom for longer than eight months, okay? Now, remember, as I've told you, there's a lot of stuff in the literature and in the package inserts, which is, so you gotta be careful. Routinely, what we will do when we use bathroom is we'll get baselines, CBC and general health profile, pick up the liver also, and we'll repeat them in one month. 
and then we repeat them yearly if the patient happens to be on the drug for that period of time. Yes, ma'am. Two more questions, please. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts with liver toxicity and minocycline? Do you see uh, much of a what problem toxicity? with liver toxicity? Oh, with minocycline? I've not seen a problem. What happened originally, we always talk about, everybody worries about their liver. Well, the liver is probably one of the greatest organs in the world to regenerate no matter what you do to it. It's kind of hard to kill it off, but that's beside the point. When I first went into practice in 78, for the first 10 years or so, 15 years, I was drawing CBCs and LFTs on every patient on systemic antibiotics. And I never saw problems of any consequence with any of them. And then I think in the mid-80s, a couple of articles came out that verified that there was in the literature a large study showing it wasn't necessary to do it. You do have with minocycline, obviously, the hypersensitivity syndrome. So if clinically you suspect that, you want to grab those LFTs. Yes, ma'am. Do you, do you ever use generic uh, doxy or minnow? And if so, how do you dose it uh, and use it for your patients? The problem is that I often make the comment now that the only reason that I exist is to carry malpractice insurance because the patient comes in having been on the internet with the diagnosis. The managed health care has told you what you're going to be able to use, and I'm in the middle just as the conduit for the whole thing. Uh, I explain to patients that I have two choices. Uh, generic and brand name drugs. And I give them a short advantages of one versus the other, in my opinion. And then what I will try and do is I'll try and pick a brand name and give them the coupon, because they all have the rebates now, and explain to them, see if this doesn't get your copay down to what's reasonable so you get the best medicine. I try and practice medicine and not money in that sense. And if it doesn't work, then it's generic, and I have no choice. But the patient is given a choice. And remember, you're morally responsible to pick the medication that has the best chance of helping, the least chance of hurting. And it's not our job to make the monetary decision. It's our job, to provide, in my opinion, to provide information to the patient and allow them to pick what's best for them. And with that, I'll thank you for your time this morning.